Well, a very, very happy new year to you from both of us here at the Northern Spin Podcast. I'm Michael Taylor, and I'm wishing you all a very happy and healthy 2023 as we return for the sixth episode of season two of the Northern Spin Podcast. The new year honours ignored me again. I wouldn't accept one if they offered, frankly. But my name is still Michael Taylor, and I'm still the editor of Business Desk in the Northwest. As always, I'm joined by the banter king of Kent himself, the cheeky chappy from Chorley, Chris McGuire? Um, I would accept an honour, Michael, if I was offered, but I've not been offered. And what, and, what would your title be? Um, well, probably that, actually. The Cheeky Chappy of Kent would uh, would sort of suffice for me, or the, uh, or the uh, Lord of Cheeky Chappiness from Chorley. One of those but two. But you, know, you don't get made a Lord in the honor, in those honours lists. That's OBEs and MBEs. Sirs or sirs. Well, I'll start sirs, with an OBE yeah. and then move, yeah. up to a, uh, and move up to an MBE. Right. Um, okay. But look, at least they've not called me a spare. Now, that's <laughs> a book. I'm not going to be reading. No, me neither. Moving swiftly on. Okay. Now, on a serious note, I am still the executive editor of Business Cloud, which might surprise people. I've got a New Year's request. And incidentally, I don't like wishing people a happy New Year. No, I know you don't. Are you, are you the Scrooge of... Maybe that's the other name yeah, you wish you. you wish Happy New Year, like three days after New Year. And no, then, I do it up then until it comes about down. the 28th of February. It's the first time you've seen someone. So all these guys here in the studio who work with us from What Media, fantastic team. Sam sat with us producing today's podcast. First thing I see him, big handshake, happy New Year. Yeah, but if you see, I'm not Sam, seen him. If you see Sam for the first time in, in August, do you still wish him Happy New Year? That's where you've got to draw the line. No, um, I don't, but I work with him regularly and we're seeing him now. So I think um, but I have got you're a in a minority here. I have got a New Year's stop, wish. Stop digging. I have got a New Year's wish and it's that our uh, ever-expanding group of listeners, which is great actually, they press the subscribe button. So about half the people who listen to our podcast are subscribers. This is an issue that faces lots of podcasts, including my mate Steve Bartlett. Um, he, he reckons 75% of their listeners don't subscribe. They just listen at whim, uh, uh, you know, when they then when they want to want to. So what I, I wish actually is that our people, our listeners, press the subscribe button. That makes a big difference to us, uh, and it makes a big difference as well commercially. So uh, that's my wish. Okay, so before we get stuck into the show, we've got a couple of important thank yous to give. We've already bigged up our friends at What Media, but there's no problem in doing that again they really turn our political political ramblings on the northern spin podcast into this weekly delight that drops into people's boxes either on youtube and some people even watch us on video do you know that i know Amazing. yeah tell me to stop fidgeting sorry um so thank you what media um oscar technology as well yeah yeah and she just mentioned um ellis street she oh, yeah ellis uh, from the team has been made producer at so the age of 24 with- i know what a talent yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'd like to thank, as well as What Media, I'd like to thank Oscar Technology. They are our sponsors. Um, they're not our only sponsors as well. Other slots are available. Founded in 2008, they're a leading name in the world of tech and digital recruitment. After a record-breaking year in 2022, Oscar is planning several office openings around the world. I don't know if that extends as far as Chorley. Um, so we keep a close eye on that, and we uh, thank them very much for being our sponsor. And not a tough amongst them. <laughs> we'll come on to that later. Yeah. So thank you, Oscar Technology. We had a big week last year where Rishi Sunak and Sakir Starmer laid out their stalls for the year ahead. Let's talk about something very close to your heart then, Tories. It's the chat, Chris. It's the Tories. It, it the felt, chaps. The it, chaps are back. <laughs> good old, good old chaps it, it probably, from the Tory party. <laughs> Safe pair of hands. I can, I can see what your New Year's resolution is trying to be, which is funny, and you're failing already. Um, what? What? We're trying to be funny with that you know, rubbish impression of a toffee-nosed um, Tory. Um, now, it is a subject close to my heart, as is the Labour Party, because what I want is what's best for Britain. And there was a lot of political posturing last week. Rishi Sunak's policy um, seems to be that he and his ministers aren't going to fill the airwaves with countless appearances, unless they've got something really important to say, or it's a flagship event. So uh, fall, fell over on that one already. So, so soon it was interviewed by Laura Koonsberg on Sunday, pre-recorded interview. Now, the fact that he's not done many interviews has led to accusations that he's gone missing, especially in relation to the ongoing problems with the NHS, which we'll talk about, and the continuing industrial action. The interesting thing is that if the next general election was decided by a popularity contest between Sunak and Keir Starmer, there's a chance he could win, uh, but unfortunately his own personal popularity isn't matched by that of his party. It's no coincidence that he tried to steal the agenda by giving his speech before Starmer's. Uh, You know, Starmer himself said that he'd booked the venue in East London before the Conservatives. It was just down the road. With the general election likely to be next year, it's hard to believe that, next year in 2024, I went through Sunak's five pledges because he's focusing on the biggies rather than sweating the small stuff. So his pledges were half inflation, 
this year. Now, most economists think inflation has already peaked, so it's fairly safe. It's going to it's going to drop probably to half what it is at the moment. So as as pledges go, that's a safe bet. Grow the economy, a little bit vague. Yeah. Get our what, national. What does, that, what does that even mean? Exactly, exactly. Get our national debt falling. Now, after Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's terrible 49 days in office, it seems to change. Some people say 44, other people say 49. Um, I think this is a massive attempt by uh, Rishi Sunak to restore the Conservatives' reputation for economic prudence. NHS waiting list to fall. Once again, a fairly vague promise. He's not set a timescale for NHS waiting list to fall. He's also he's said his fifth pledge is to pass a new law to stop the the uh, the boats arriving. Um, now, passing laws is not the same as actually tackling the problem of small I re- boats. I really, really don't like it when politicians, even backbench politicians who do these petitions and private members' bills to introduce laws to supposedly stop things they don't like when there there is already enough law to do it. But what there isn't is the government resources to be able to tackle the problem. Well, the other the other tactic that politicians use is when they're trying to get out of a uh, a jam. They say we've launched an inquiry and we can't comment until the inquiry. Yeah, they do, um, don't they? That's so really so, annoying. So when they say we're going to pass a bill, you know that's not the same as passing a bill to tackle a problem. I thought it was a competent performance by Sunak. Uh, I thought the BBC's political editor probably summed it up best, Chris Mason, when he said, "Is that it?" Now you're not going to get any great performances by Sunak. In fact, I don't think you're going to get any great performances by Starmer in terms of from a PR perspective. But the newspaper headlines were reasonably positive. Were you? Um, well, of course the newspaper headlines are really positive because that's the way the media in this country works. They're what I would call client journalists who work and client newspapers who work the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Times, the Telegraph, pretty much cheerlead anything the Tories say. It was absolutely embarrassing during Boris Johnson's last few days, the way the Daily Express in particular rallied around Boris Johnson and papered over all his quite obvious failings, even the ones he'd admit to himself. They they absolutely give them an easy ride. Um, I've now had the opportunity to watch Rishi Sunak or clips of him on the Laura Koonsberg show. I thought it was a weak performance. I think he was quite clearly repeating those same five pledges and those those sound bites over and over again instead of answering the apps the actual questions that she put to him. I thought most of her questions were fairly weak. He failed to answer the very simple question about his own experiences of using private healthcare, which has become the issue that everybody's picked up on. Should he have said that he uses private doctors because yeah, if because he does, Margaret yes. Thatcher did Margaret Thatcher she said yes I do because I want to book an appointment that suits me uh, and allows me to 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 go about my job okay and actually she didn't get a rough ride on that but we didn't have social media in them days so if if Rishi Sunak has said yes I use a private doctor yeah. you know would that problem have gone away no it wouldn't have done um, I think the problem that has not gone away is the fact that I think everybody knows by his obfuscating that clearly he does use private healthcare and that puts him in the minority in the population. And the NHS is facing this really acute crisis that anybody who's experienced it at all recently, and we have again over the, over the uh, Christmas break, <laughs> I think it plays to the point that he's out of touch with the, 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 the lives of normal people. Mm. I think that's that's what's at stake here. And that's why, obviously, opposition politicians and people who don't like him will be pushing that line on social media because basically he's not like one of us. He, he's, he's tough. You think rather than being measured against these five pledges, he should be measured against the manifesto pledges? Yes, I do. So you contrast the five pledges that he's made this week and you contrast them with the Tory manifesto that he and all those other Tories were elected on to give them an 80-seat majority as recently as 2019. Where's the extra funding for the NHS? They promised 50,000 more nurses and 50 million more GP surgery appointments a year. Nonsense. It's absolutely in tatters. 20,000 more police and tougher sentencing for criminals. Again, it's just rhetoric. The Australian-style points-based system to control immigration. This country is already really difficult to get into. And both Suella Braverman and Priti Patel before her had not in any way gripped the immigration system in this country. They, they promise more investment into schools, science, apprenticeships, infrastructure, whilst controlling debt. Again, absolute nonsense, though, to be fair, as I am a fair person, mm-hmm. um, we have had a global pandemic that they funded. And then, but there's no mention of the other pledges in there as well. Net zero, no raising of taxes. And those other fa- that other famous word that supposedly helped them secure the red wall, leveling out. Where is it? No. Where I- is it? 
Well, I think Rishi Sunak is more committed to levelling up than Liz Truss, which wouldn't be hard. Um, I think, I thought Rishi Sunak this week, I thought he did okay. He's competent. He wants to be taken as a serious politician. He wants people to say, you know what, we can trust the Conservative Party because Rishi Sunak is a uh, safe pair of hands. No, he's a good chap. Yeah, I thought he played... As, as Peter Hennessy, the famous historian, says, he has his theory, the good chap theory, that people like you... You know, you like these safe Tory, as you say, you call it safe pair of hands. You mean capable toffs. No, he played he played the interview with a fairly straight bat. I think what he's in danger of doing is what Liz trusted in the last few days of her disastrous 49 days, which is just relying on about three lines, you know, which is yeah. growth, you know, and the anti-growth coalition. I mean, it's interesting that Sunak's not going on the offensive. He's not. Uh, he just wants to be seen as a serious politician. He's getting his message out there and he will be able to demonstrate that inflation has dropped by 4% because of the measures that we're taking and things will be better under the next Conservative government. That's what he tries to get across. You're not going to see... Loads and loads of headlines from his from his uh, from his cabinet. You're not. You're just going to see selective ones as well. That's because that's, he's, why... that's because I don't think he's got a genuine vision for what kind of country that he wants to lead. To be fair, I thought Trust did, though it was just absolutely bonkers. She was talking about a country that doesn't exist. Now I don't know. I didn't watch all of the interview. I'll be I'll be fully candid about that. But prior to the interview with Laura Koonsberg, he came out with this nonsense idea about making every child in this country study maths up until the age of eighteen, and then had another statement about anti-strike laws. For me, they were pure dead cat tactics. It's just change the subject, say something controversial, and and grab the headlines. So wanting to ban strikes and having a minute minimum level of minimum level of public service. I mean, what about the responsibility of the ambulance service to actually provide someone to get an ambulance? We had to call an ambulance for a, a, an old lady that we look after and, it, and we were told it would be nine hours. I, now, where's, where, 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 where is that the union's fault that they should somehow guarantee that to be? Because it wasn't on a strike day. Can I just pick you up on something you said earlier? Because was it, wasn't it Boris Johnson who wrote about the dead cat tactic? No, it was uh, Linton Crosby. Yeah. And it was most... It was deployed during the 2015 general election when people were talking about one thing. And Michael Fallon, who was a Tory minister at the time under David Cameron, went onto a programme and said, we can't trust Ed Miliband because he knifed his own brother in the back. It was a ridiculous thing to say. But, <laughs> but what it did is it had the net effect of everybody suddenly talking about something else other than what, you know, they should be talking about, which is cost of living crisis, the NHS on its knees. And the country, basically, infrastructure not working at the moment. Um, you mentioned New Year at the start, uh, excessively, I think. I, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to live my life a certain way. You know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be nasty. I don't want to say things just to attract clicks. Uh, I don't. That's not me. But, but one of the things that I didn't like last week, and you mentioned the uh, Sunex attempt at uh, trying to get people to take maths until they're eighteen, which incidentally I didn't agree with. I didn't agree with the idea. But Simon Pegg, you know, the actor who took to social media to use a load of expletives and say it was this, it was that, it was outrageous, et cetera, et cetera. And then the last time I checked it, it had 4.6 million views. Wow. That is, that is the worst thing. I hate stuff like that. It's just, for me, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's, it's everything that's wrong with the world. Um, I think it's a race to the bottom. People say stuff, they put expletives in there. You know, it beats the algorithm. They get a young audience sharing it because they say, I agree with that. I didn't want to do foreign languages at school, but I was made to until my third year, until they realised that I didn't actually know any foreign words. So they said I didn't have to take foreign languages. I'm not going to go on social media and rant, am I? Why does Simon Pegg do it for? And we should just cut that stuff down. I think your claim that that is everything that is wrong with the world is working pretty hard there. I think Simon Pegg is doing nothing more than reflecting the real raw anger that's out there that... Um, that Rishi Sunak is not addressing the issues that are really important to people. The fact that he swore you don't like it because it makes him less of a good chap. Um, <laughs> What's this obsession with the word chap, Michael? You know, you, have you ever heard me use the word chap? Do I look posh toys. to you? Do I sound posh to you? Yeah, I'm not posh. Yeah, no, but you like the posh shows, don't you? I don't like you, the posh shows. You like, you like the good old Tory chaps. Your, your thing is, doing the right thing. thing is, what you're trying to do is you're trying to make yourself out to be a mank. That's what you're trying to do. Eh? Yeah, I'm down with, you know, I'm, I'm Michael Taylor. I'm Michael Taylor. I'm a proper labourist, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> what you're trying to do, you're trying to make yourself. You live in a big house in Marple. Let's, let's put the facts on the table. How many bedrooms have you got? Four. Four. 
poor, exactly. Yeah, you know, so, so you're making out that you're living. You it's because I've got a big family. So you, yeah. What's the point? Your kids don't live with you anymore. And <laughs> that's not personal. You've got a big family. Yeah, we couldn't sell our house. house. Couldn't sell our house because the housing market's collapsed. Yeah. We were trying to downsize well, you're, because you're, we think it's amoral that people should be living in big houses where they're not utilising all the rooms. That makes you a chap. That makes you a chap as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you're living in a big house. It does house. not make me. You're living in a big house, which you don't it need. It does not make me an, chap. Eat, an eaten attending good old chap who I'll stand up in front of an audience of business people and say, ah, Labour are too socialist, we're going to vote Conservative. Get get the good chaps back in. Okay, all right, chap. <laughs> Chappy Taylor, that's your new nickname. Look at you, getting personal as well. There's yeah. absolutely no need for that. <laughs> anyway, I've got absolutely no problem with Simon Pegg doing what he did. I'm, I'm not saying he wanted there to be 4.6 million people viewing it, but I think it, the fact that so many people did reflected the real anger that's out there at the moment. And I'm rather that people are liking his content than that idiot, Andrew Tate, banged up in Romania and the effect that he has on young minds. Uh, uh, Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Andrew Tate because um, Jess Phillips, who is uh, the Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding, didn't know who Andrew Tate was. Now, surely, surely, bearing in mind, and I'm not an apologist for Andrew Tate, but he's sending out this misogynistic content which is beating the algorithms and is dropping into people's timelines, young kids, young impressionable kids' timelines, and some of the things he's saying is absolutely outrageous, and he's doing it just he's a shock jock. Yeah. You know, surely Jess Phillips, as, as Labour's Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding, needs to know who he is. Surely. I don't know. Maybe she didn't want to dignify him by acknowledging his existence. I remember a really brilliant moment at a, a, a Labour-ish event I went to in about 2013 where Dave Haslam um, was interviewing David Miliband well, that's on, the end of on, fame. on stage. <laughs> He's actually more famous for DJing at the boardwalk, but of okay. course you wouldn't know that and you <laughs> yeah. just accused me of trying to get down with Demanx. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, moving on. And Dave had this really long question for David Miliband about something that Owen Jones had said. And David Miliband's kind of brow furrowed, his eyes narrowed. He turned around, he went, who's Owen Jones? And I thought that was absolutely masterful. So you mentioned you went to a Labourish event. I'm surprised you could remember which event it was because you've been to so many. Um, but we're going to move on and talk Channel 4 because what we don't want to make this into is a personal slagging match between me and you, the chap from Marple. Um, what do you think of the government's decision not to sell Channel 4? Well, I used to write about the television business in the 1990s when I was a struggling journalist getting by living off pot noodles in my bedsit in London trying to make my way in the world because I'm not from a posh background <laughs> but back then i did i got I, I gathered together all my courage and confidence and was granted an interview in the boardroom of channel four with the red braced um cigar chomping michael grade the chief executive of channel four at the time and i remember asking him then what was his tactics for fighting the inevitable campaign that there would be to privatize the channel and that was in the 1990s in the dying days of the conservative government so about 93 294-ish, about. Mm. Anyway, what people don't appreciate is the model for Channel 4 is a publisher broadcaster. So apart from right to reply, do you know how many hours of television they've produced in their entire history? Not not, 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 not many. No. Har- hardly any. All their shows are made by independent production companies, independent producers. Their news is produced by ITN. They import lots of programs from overseas that they make into hits through their own marketing and their own very careful targeting of their demographic. Um, and some of these independent producers that started making shows for Channel 4 back in the 1980s when they started have grown to be significant media companies. So in many ways, it's a very, very Tory success story, supporting entrepreneurship and, and private enterprise. Moving to Leeds, which was in theory should allow more access to commissioners of programmes in the north, creating more opportunities for the creative industries. But I noticed one interesting thing in the in the announcement that Michelle Donnellan made, who's the new cultural secretary, succeeding Nadine Dorries. She mentioned changing Channel 4's charter to enable them to produce their own content in greater numbers. But Channel 4's never asked for this. So I mean, I'm absolutely baffled as to why that should suddenly be on the government's agenda. Or maybe she just doesn't understand how that model works. I don't know. What do you think? What do you think about 
because incidentally as well, Pact, the organization that I, I, I later went on to work for and produced their magazine, their statement was, any relaxation of Channel 4's publisher broadcaster status will be a blow to the sector who are already facing increased production and business-related costs. Okay, so what do you think? What do you think of well, um, I think it's interesting Channel 4? I think it's interesting that you cozied on up to uh, Michael Grade all them years ago. Um, cozied I, on up? Yeah. I was a terrified young journalist yeah. sitting in his office scribbling yeah. notes yeah. and hoping I didn't make a mistake. Okay, and no longer a struggling journalist as well. You know, that's that's refreshing. No longer eating pot noodles in your in your four-bedroom mansion. Um, no, it gets how, do you, how do you know I don't? It get, well, maybe you do. I it, do like a Vesta chow mein as it goes. Okay. Keep, um, keep going. It gets going. back to the point. It gets back to the point, I think, um, in terms of Channel 4, that um, it, it falls into the category that Channel 4 is not going to win the next general election. So the Conservatives have said, you know what, why are we talking about privatising and selling off Channel 4? There's no point. There's not huge calls for it. Um, I thought it was a good call by Michelle Donnellan. She's only 38, incidentally. Uh, one, of my, uh, one of my things I'm obsessed by is people's ages. I always check their ages. She's 38. Um, given that Channel 4 recently moved to Leeds, I think there's a tiny nod towards levelling up. This is what I think the Conservatives are trying to do. They're not coming out and making you know, statements about levelling up. But but by their actions, they are trying to, like, you know, say, well, actually, you know, we are aware of the whole need to levelling up. So they've said that they're going to promise to double the number of Channel 4 jobs outside of London. Henry Morrison of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, who uh, seems to be quite prolific on social media. What age is he? Um, I don't know, but I'd hazard a guess at about 44. I met him at Chester Racecourses. <laughs> Not interested. Um, Move and on. Andy on. Burnham, Andy Burnham tweeted their support for the decision. 53, do you reckon? Uh, Andy Burnham, well, he ran the Boston Marathon last year, didn't he? So he's early 50s. If you're listening, Andy, you're welcome on the show. Um, they tweeted their support for the decision, but the fact that Nadine Doris condemned the move convinces me it was the right decision. <laughs> but don't you think, though, don't you think, this is the problem that... That the she's a total idiot. Yeah, I think, well, like I say, I don't, I don't want to, you know, cast aspersions on people, but the moment, you can see what's happened, um, the Conservatives decided that, that they're going to not go down the route of selling off Channel 4. So uh, Michelle uh, Donnellan has given Nadine a call and said, hey, Nadine, just to let you know, we're not going to go ahead with your policy. And Nadine stakes straight social media to condemn everything and says the last three years of every Think that we achieved under Boris Johnson has just been washed down the. It's just been washed down. What did it's they embarrassing. achieve? It is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I think Nadim Doris's motivation for wanting to privatise Channel Four was pure culture war stuff. Just because she'd had a hard time on an interview with Krishnan Gurumurthy, and just because they did a few programmes that the Guardian reading tofu eating types like, therefore it's right for privatisation, and it, it's. Absolute nonsense. Yeah, she hasn't it, thought it through. Yeah, it, no, I agree. I agree. But she. But it, it wouldn't even be privatised for the benefit of you know the, the general public buying shares in their own corporation like privatisation promised in the nineteen eighties. They probably just sold it off to a global media company and merged it with Channel Five or something. Yeah, that, that I think was, it was that just... was the the speculation in the industry apparently. But anyway, ticking the box. I think it was the right decision. Now let's talk about something that's even closer to your heart than the Conservatives are to my heart because they're not really close to my heart. But we know that Labour Party is very very close. It is in your <laughs> DNA. Well, I'm a Labour Party member. Full yeah, disclosure. Yeah. So yeah. so with this, but I don't work for them anymore. I'm a I'm a journalist. Absolutely. So with this very defensive though, Michael, very yeah. defensive. You don't need to tell me we're friends. You don't need to tell me, but if you feel the need to tell the general public, you can. So no, it's just, I think it's just important to be honest. Starmer, Starmer, um, yeah. Sir Keir Starmer with his sleeves rolled up, delivered his first speech of 2023, nicked the Brexit slogan, take back control. What was your take on that and his performance generally? I think he's building up a steady but solid and unspectacular reputation for safety, maturity and honesty. I think the decision to use the slogan, take back control, is a brave one. It also speaks to the idea that things are happening to people that they have no control over, and that is a motivator for them to vote one way or the other. Dominic Cummins quite rightly identified that and weaponized it to mobilize support for Brexit. And Starmer just has to be really, really careful now that mobilizing support for devolution which is what, which is where this policy direction is going in, is done at a level that people think that things being done to them, decisions being taken about their everyday lives, are taken at a level that they can relate to and have some say over, rather than it just being another managerial they making decisions to change their lives. And we've seen that with things like the clean air zone in Greater Manchester, that people in parts of Bury and 
Salford and Trafford and Stockport on its outer fringes near where I live, that places there thought that it was being done by Andy Burnham and the centre. And I think that's a real... And, and having things like the... Um, the plan for jobs and homes to work, to, to sort of have a, a long-term plan. Again, that has, people have to have purchase into it in the decisions that are made. Mm. What do you think? Um, I think Starmer is increasingly sounding like a prime minister in waiting. Yeah. Okay. I think the thing I like about Starmer is that Starmer's not trying to pretend something. He's not trying to pretend to be something he's not. No. You know, he's, he knows what his limitations are and he knows what his strengths are. He's never going to be box office when it comes to his performance. Um, he does try to crack a joke about the fact that he's not going to tell Boris Johnson, sorry, he's not going to tell Rishi Sunak where he's going on holiday in case Rishi's there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that humour comes across particularly well when he accused um when he accused Rishi Sunak of being a blancmange prime minister I think before Christmas at PMQs that didn't work that's not his that's not his um you know his expertise um he he's being very sensible about saying we're not going to make any reckless announcements on spending to stimulate the economy um I think West Eating for me just goes up in my estimation all the time when he talks about the health service they're not throwing away things just to try and attract mm-hmm. cheap headlines okay he spoke about a partnership with private business that's sensible um and he's, he's not afraid to defend it as well. He speaks a lot about devolution and devolving powers out of Westminster. That plays very well to the red wall seats up here. What I found more telling was the, um, was the comments in the week, earlier in the week, your mate, Peter Mandelson. Um, you know, when did you speak to Peter last? Oh, not for ages. Okay, well, anyway, you're... you're... No, actually, last year we were at um, a Progressive Britain conference okay. in about... It was in the summertime. It was a really hot day in London. So uh, you and your mate, Peter, um, he was doing the rounds, various podcasts last week in support of Starmer that I thought was was really quite telling. A lot of people are trying to say, does this feel like 1995 and 1996 when um, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and the Labour Party, you know, were, were coming to the fore? And the general view is no, but it's feeling a bit like that. But also don't compare Starmer with Blair because they are completely different, you know. Yeah, I agree. I think there's one trap, though, that Keir Starmer really does need to be very careful about. So party politics is always about holding together coalitions of different competing views within that broad coalition. And he has to be really careful on the Brexit rhetoric. So the Green Party MP, Caroline Lucas, praised Starmer for focusing quite rightly on long-term solutions, not short-term sticking plaster policies. But she was quite critical of him for treating the whole issue of the devastating impact of Brexit as some kind of absurd taboo. Nobody wants to talk about Brexit. Yeah. No, nobody. They want they, they daren't. Because there's a guy who writes to the local paper uh, that I write for in Tameside, the Tameside uh, Reporter and Glossop Chronicle papers. And there's a really lively letters page. And there's a guy called Alan O'Day in Staleybridge. And he writes these letters berating the Ramonas. And I can almost hear his voice. And I'm not, I'm not going to try and impersonate it. But it's this idea that, oh, we won the referendum. Suck it up. And I think that's, I think people are scared of people like that. He's never going to vote Labour anyway. He's going to vote for whatever party Nigel Farage comes up with or or some other demi-fascist group that might emerge but, from but the wreckage. Right. Yeah, you're right. Brexit is the one thing that he's just not getting drawn in. Um, one thing I don't like about journalists is when they have a big-name guest in, a politician, and they they, they throw some curveball questions uh, at them. And they, uh, yeah, I remember um, I remember they, they, they did it with the, uh, what was the name of the MP in Liverpool? Um, he was asked questions about Liverpool's history. Um, the Jewish MP who... Uh, Luciana Berger? That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and she's spoken very much about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, but I remember she was asked loads of questions about when did Liverpool win the year, you know, the year of the championship and, and stuff like that. The, uh, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I thought that was a little bit unfair, you know, but it was one of those that was meant to catch her out. And yeah. they do it with a lot of politicians. How much is a loaf of bread? You yeah, know, damn it. Yeah, I don't yeah. like that, but I'm going to throw it to you now. Oh, no. I'm going to ask you some questions. Uh, and I know, a I pound. feel confident. A loaf feel, of bread's a pound. <laughs> I Milk, feel, milk's about 80p. What sort of bread do you like? I'm actually off bread at the moment, oh, yeah. but I, I do like a, a nice nutty, nutty brown loaf on my to- with a bit of toast. Okay, all right. uh, you know, toasted with a bit of jam. Okay, what listen, about you? What do you well, like? Well, probably as why, if this I is relevant. Probably why? Uh, listen, I think this answer is, the question. What why? kind of bread do you like? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, a bit like you, I, I try and I try and uh, I try not to eat too much bread because it's a bit heavy on the old tum tum. Um, so I tend to eat wraps, a lot of wraps. But I think this is the sort of content that's going to get us awards, Michael. <laughs> okay, but I'm Go going on. to ask you five questions because <gasps> one of my issues about the Labour Party is this: is nobody knows who the shadow cabinet is. So now 
you will know because you're a sad laborist who attends every laborist meetings going but but let's just put it to the test i'm not going to ask sam the questions but at the end i'm going to ask sam to put hands out of five right how many of these do you know sam it's not to embarrass you it's just you're a normal bloke whereas michael's a laborist okay okay easy one to start who is a shadow chancellor rachel reeves okay start up at one okay and we've got some musical accompaniment ding okay that's one out of one who is the shadow home secretary yvette cooper okay i'd have got both of those because they're both fairly well known okay uh, who is the shadow defense secretary john healy see that's pretty sad um, that you know that <laughs> is that is pretty sad who is the shadow education secretary bridget phillipson okay 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 uh, correct do you want me to tell you what constituencies they represent no, as no, well no but actually i could probably tell you how old they all are um uh, and uh, the last one who is the shadow transport secretary louise haig okay so you got five out of five and you probably feel really good about yourself now because no. that just confirms your labourist tendencies. But let's open it up to the public. Of those five, how many would you have got? So, so got zero, yeah. zero. Okay. And Sam, normal man in the street, wouldn't have known any of those. I've met the man in the street. Okay. You're an absolute labourist. So A, you need to get out more. Okay. I do. But, but I do a political podcast. Okay. I do but, my research. Absolutely. You do do your research. Okay. But at the 2019 general election, you will be aware that the Labour Party had their worst performance since 1935. So the number of Labour politicians was completely decimated. So we've been, we're, we're both in agreement that the Labour Party will almost certainly win the next general election, okay? Uh, and if you look at Keir Starmer's pool of talent that he's going to go to to create a new cabinet, he has not got a lot to go at. He's not got a lot of household names among those shadow politicians. They're not talking. I can't remember the last time I heard John Healy talk. Um, that's the reason why I think Labour heavyweights like Andy Burnham, I've said it before, I'll say it again, Andy, if you're listening, and David Miliband will go back to Westminster because, because there, isn't enough of, there isn't enough of a pool of talent in the Labour Party to, 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 to create a cabinet and, and all the ministers that they need. Should we be worried? No, we shouldn't. So the shadow cabinet have absolutely zero power. Why should people hang off their words? Until there's a general election, it's just podcasts like ours that listen to stuff out there so you don't have to. So I don't think it's a massive issue at all. I dare say most members of the general public couldn't name the actual cabinet in all of those roles. Yeah? I mean, I know we could. But yeah. I think I asked you earlier who, off mic who, who the health secretary is. Yeah. I, yeah. I couldn't immediately think who it is. And there's, there's quite a few like Mark Harper as Transport Secretary, a relatively unknown. I think Boris Johnson was bringing all sorts of non-entities into his cabinet in his dying days because he couldn't make up the numbers. I don't think it's that... that um I don't think it's that important. I do remember a, an anecdote that uh, a journalist um, told once called Danny Finkelstein from The yeah. Times, and he was telling a story. It says, on the application form, it says, are you interested in politics? This is for a job in political journalism. So can you name the shadow transport minister? And the reply came back. I said I was interested in politics, not obsessed with it. I think if you asked me to name, you know, conservative politicians, I could literally name any politician who is a conservative. And at some point in the last six months, they would have been a minister. Yeah, good chaps all of them, Chris. <laughs> Just like you, Michael. Anyway, it's time for an interview and, uh, and see if Michael, you know, brings out his halloumi, um, you know, during the interview. So welcome back to the second part of the Northern Spring podcast. I do need to apologise, actually, because I was trying to think of a posh food that uh, chaps in Marpoli, and I came up with halloumi, um, and uh, that got zero points. Um, so then I suggested hummus, and then Sam, who's a man of the people, because he didn't know any of the shadow cabinet, said, I eat, hummus, I, I eat hummus and I eat halloumi. So I don't know what would be a really posh food, but I apologise anyway for just generalisations. Now, uh, Northern Spin, this is a section we're going to talk about regional politics, and we've got a, a new game that I'm going to play, and you'll love it. It's called On Manoeuvres. But you want to talk about a serious subject first and a serious man. You want to talk about the high street and an article by somebody that we both like, Sir John Timpson. What's your thoughts? So when I worked at Manchester Metropolitan University, University from 2016 up until 2021. I successfully applied within the university for them to fund a new think tank called Metropolis. We held events, we published books and papers in order to get academics involved in policy conversations. We met many politicians and policy wonks, and but the absolute killer initiative was the Chancellor's Fellowship. 
where we'd, we would invite academics to apply for funding to work in a government department or produce some work that could have impact. One of them was to support the Institute for Place Management at the university to look at the future of high streets. Professor Kathy Parker and Dr. Steve Millington did some fantastic work. And one of them was an event where we involved Sir John Timpson, who then went on to work with the government to produce a report. He's worth, been, he, worth just saying, worth just saying in terms of John Timpson, you know, when people think of Timpson's where you get your keys cut and yeah. you get your, you know, you get your clothes cleaned as well. Yeah. And James Timpson now runs it, his son. Um, Incidentally, uh, John Timpson's son, stop, stop Edward. Pointing at me. It's Sorry, really <laughs> John Timpson's son, Edward. He's a uh, he's an MP, isn't he? Or at least he was. Well, interestingly, he was um, the MP for Crewe and Nantwich for a short period, and Labour waged this campaign against him, which I thought was really horrible, actually, where they were all wearing top hats and tails and making out that it was a real toff. And I just thought that was so disrespectful for everything that the Timpson family were really about. Amazing Because he's, he's not. You know, he's not hes not a top hat. No, he's not. No, definitely he's not. A good, he's a good chap. Yeah. But he's not. Anyway. Okay. And I, he, was, he was a reasonably good um, children's minister as well mm. because his family have got all that lived experience of fostering. So Sir John's written a column, hasn't he? So he has. He wrote a piece in the I newspaper, um, which was really good, about the high streets. And his basic contention is, yes, there are going to be fewer shops that are on each individual high street. Yes, there's going to be a withdrawal of lots of brands. And I see this myself where I live in the Stockport suburb of Marple. M&Co has a closing down sale at the moment. When we first moved there in 2006, there were six banks. There are now none, unless you count the Vernon Building Society, having a small counter inside an estate agent. And there's a real transformation going on. The, a lot of the a lot of those properties are being given over now, not just shops, but over to leisure operators. Uh, a couple of pubs have closed, but at the same time, other sort of pop up micro breweries have started. There's a what used to be the the RBS Bank is now converted into flats, as has actually the uh, <laughs> the old NatWest Bank. They had two on the same strip of land, and and I think where where we where Steve Millington and Kathy Parker did the research was really interesting is that. Town centres where the local council has an intervention and they start putting events on and they bring the local business community to have like, a, you know, a partnership or a town team to really animate the space, to create markets every now and again and, and maybe to convert buildings with a bit of state support into something very different and compelling to an event spaces to bring people in. They've succeeded. And the example that always gets thrown up is Altrincham. Mm. And you know a little bit about that as well, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Just in terms of, I think it's quite interesting what you mentioned about um, Edward Timpson is that I think we've got to be careful not to criticise people because they come from a family which may have some money or may have earned money. Um, I, I look at the Timpson family, I judge them from what they do. And um, so John Timpson's wife, I listened to a uh, Desert Island Disc, I think it was with Sir John, and he spoke about his wife and how they, how she were, um, were foster parents for a long yeah. period of time. They are a marvellous family. And what James Timpson does is a phenomenal speaker, what he does with his top-down business and... Yeah the way they they look after their members of staff that's how i i judge people um so uh, i um, i was thinking about this because i know you want to talk about high streets and obviously i live near chorley and um, south ribble we go to chorley you get free parking for the first few hours um you need to have a ticket i didn't have a ticket once got a parking ticket but i'm not bitter leyland you can also park in free blue spaces so you know parking shouldn't be an issue in chorley and leyland but i spoke to my wife about this and she said you know what i walked down leyland high street um recently and she said there were no empty shops she said but what they were were there were loads of like uh you're never more than four feet from a barber in leyland that's a fact um there's lots of charity shops nothing wrong with that at all vape shops as well porn shops and the problem is is that you have to have a special offer so um there's a guy that we both know nick johnson and you mentioned altrincham and he had this view that food markets can revitalize towns and city centers so so uh i went to altrincham i went to the food market uh, and, and it was amazing it was absolutely um you know buzzing there were loads of people there this wasn't just like you know in the week before christmas this was like you know in in some period of time when you wouldn't have expect many people as well so i think for town centres to be successful they can't just be click and collect places they've got to have a unique offer um, I think food markets work for certain areas 
I think, but they have to offer an experience. And I remember back in the day when you were the editor of the Northwest Insider, the first event you ever that I went to that you hosted was in Warrington. And we had um, our friends from Use Developments were giving a speech and they were talking about the plans for Warrington. And they said there has to be a leisure offer to go alongside the retail offer. You know, and, and actually everybody accepts that now, but back then it wasn't because we had the out-of-town shopping centres as well. So I think city centres and town centres, to be appealing to the public, have got to have a unique offer, whatever that offer yeah, is. Yeah, they've got to be distinctive. Now, I, I like Nick a lot. I, I, he too featured in many of the projects that um, the Institute of Place Management uh, discussed that I mentioned earlier. But there's a real danger that everywhere thinks that they can basically do an Altrincham. That's a town centre where people live in two million pound houses 100 yards away from where you can go walk along and buy a burger for 12 quid. Now, that's not going to happen with the greatest respect in Leyland, Chorley, Marple, Radcliffe or Wigan. And Radcliffe and Wigan I use very pointedly because they're just two of the places that have recently been talking about regenerating their market halls to stop to take market halls from being the sort of place where actually, you know, you go and buy stacks of bog roll. You can do that at a pound shop now. So they have to re find a new purpose. Um, and I've seen loads of people. There was one recently in Wigan. There's a new mill been developed. We did a story about it on the business desk. And it's like, and the MEN's coverage of it was, yeah, they're going to do an Altrincham. Well, they're not. I, I agree with you. And, and, and Steve Pilling did the same in Stockport. He's done a marvellous job in New Century Hall in the centre of Manchester as well. Um, a real hospitality entrepreneur in the north. Um you know, it's one size doesn't fit all. You can't just apply that model and just people will come along because they won't because every, everywhere is different. I think what Chorley, I see Chorley have done quite well is, is they spent a lot of money on the market walk, which is their shopping centre. So they do cater for different tastes. It's not necessarily just, just, just a one, hit fit, um, one hat fits all. But, but I do remember when I was the editor of the Chorley Guardian, you know, I've mentioned this before, you know, the biggest ever response we ever had to any promotion and we had free cars, win a holiday, was when we, uh, you could get a free Greg's pasty and people would go into the news agents and they'd, they would actually rip out the coupon. Um, uh, well, maybe, maybe people just like me. Um, I want to talk about something which is... We, we cover the north and we deliberately don't, don't want to cover Grays Manchester and the northwest. We want to try and go over to the northeast as well. We don't go as much as we, we do in this area, but we know this area a lot better. But there's a big announcement uh, over Christmas and New Year, and it was in the northeast. The Guardian did a nice piece about this uh, 1.4 million, what's a 1.4 billion, billion devolution deal? Yeah, you wouldn't get much 1.4 million, and uh, not even in Marple, I wouldn't imagine. Uh, a 1.4 billion pound devolution deal in the northeast. Um, the Guardian did a piece about the unlikely bomb between the levelling up secretary, Michael Gove and Jamie Driscoll, the Labour mayor for the north of uh, the north of Tyne region, and now a front runner to be the region's first mayor. Jamie Driscoll spoke, albeit remotely, um, pretty well, I thought, at the People's Powerhouse event that we both attended in Manchester recently. And his place before politics approach reminded me a little bit of Sir Richard Lees. What did you think? Well, maybe it's my own prejudice, given that uh, Jamie Driscoll used to be the chair of Momentum, in the northeast and a very very high profile supporter up there of jeremy corbyn so maybe it's i need to discard my own prejudices which immediately turn me against him um but I, I do probably need a little bit more convincing that he's more than just a lefty weather vane but but i think i think in terms of the devolution deal and what I mentioned earlier about how the Conservative government under Rishi Sunak are trying to, the drip, drip effect, was just trying to drop levelling up in there. It's no surprise that the one minister, who, who I wouldn't trust if you told me it was raining unless I checked, Michael Gove, but he is the one minister who gets stuff done. A very, very clever guy who gets stuff done. That's why I think he is uh, in charge of levelling up. Um, I've got a new game. The first game that I played, which was name that shadow cabinet minister, you got five out of five for. This next game, uh, you'll love this actually, is called On Manu well, I think it should be more than just a one-off game. I think we should we should refer to this every week in the second section. We should always do who's on manoeuvres. Okay. It doesn't have to be a Tory MP either. It could be could be a Labour mayor, Absolutely. for example. Well, let me explain to the listeners because not everybody would understand the term on manoeuvres because they're not politicos um, like ourselves. So, so it's based on the fact that politicians or, or, or civil servants, whoever, are clearly on manoeuvres and they're doing things and saying things. There's clearly a there's clearly an underlying message and an underlying motive to what they're doing. So this first one, 
uh, called On Maneuvers relates to a friend of the podcast, somebody that we refer to quite a lot, Middlesbrough South and East Cleveland MP and the former levelling up secretary, Bracket Briefly, and Boris Johnson's cheerleader, Simon Clark. Yeah, so he, Katie Balls wrote this piece in The Times and spoke about it on the Spectator's Coffeehouse Shots podcast. So, you know, you love a conspiracy theory. Yep. And Katie suggested that Trussonomics might be coming back. Oh, my God. Yeah. Really? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, uh, it was, it was, she's not saying Trussonomics are going to come back and Liz Truss is going to make a return much the same way as Boris Johnson still is being linked with a return. But what she did is uh, she had a Chinese meal uh, in a, in a restaurant with some of her loyalists. I can't believe there are many loyalists left, but one of them who was there was Simon Clark. Um, now that's prompted speculation that she might be, and he might be, on manoeuvres, she's been linked to a uh, setting up a think tank, um, which which I I can't wait for that. Um, but the suggestion is that what they want to do is they they're saying that yeah, Liz Liz Truss wasn't the greatest prime minister ever. Um, in the even though the Spectator headline at the weekend was what the PM can learn from Liz Truss, but what they're saying and you sort of hinted at it that she was consistent with what she wanted. She just didn't get her message across very well. It's all about this supply-side economics. Um, now, Simon Clark has launched a new project called Next Generation Conservatives, which which I say, I hope he didn't pay a lot of money for that branding, which is trying to engage with under-40s because the statistics show that I think only 15% of under-40s are even willing to countenance the idea of voting for the Conservatives. So what Michael, um, you know, so what, what uh, Simon Clark is doing is they're trying to engage with young conservatives so if you look at what he's doing i mean you know he's he was the one who prompted the u-turn by risha sunak over the inshore wind farms um he's yeah. talking a lot about building for young people um is is simon clark on maneuvers well yeah he's quite clearly on maneuvers um but what the world doesn't need right now is yet another right-wing think tank promoting wild ideas about things that have been completely discredited um so, okay, so tell me, come on, who else is on manoeuvres? Okay, we've only got two on manoeuvres, otherwise right. we'd literally fill five hours. Okay, so this next one is a is a name not as not as not as well known as Simon Clark. This is Blackpool South MP Scott Benton, who is increasingly has a view on anything, seemingly except if it's got to do with Blackpool South. Now, if you check out his Twitter feed, he says that Channel 4 is biased and should be sold off. He praises... Hold on a minute. So this is what we were talking about in the in the last segment. Yeah. Channel 4 is biased, yeah. therefore it should be sold off. Yeah, yeah. Why does it stop being biased? Because it's owned by someone else. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly and, and, it just becomes... Um, but this is the problem. A slave to the owners. Yeah, yeah. But this is the problem that 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 the Conservative Party have got. They've got this peripheral uh, group of MPs, and I include Scott Benton in this. Incidentally, Scott, if you're listening, you want to come on the show and defend yourself, feel yeah. free. Um, well, what else does he talk about? Absolutely. He also he also praises U.S. presidential favorite Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and shares a speech in which he said that Florida is the place where woke came to die. So so a lot of people think he won on the back of his anti wokeism um he's been tipped very much to be the next president as well uh, he says bookshops should stock harry's book spare in the fantasy section he also he also shared a piece about the fact that uh, harry kane has now got 198 goals for tottenham now just remember like if you've forgotten easy to forget scott benton is the blackpool south mp now it's worth saying that there's a guy called harry goodfellow one tweeted in response to some of his tweets Blackpool suffers from child poverty, rates are almost double that of the national average. Scott Benton has never discussed this on Twitter, um, but has found his time to give an opinion on Prince Harry's biography. Now, the point I'm making is this, is that Scott Benton will literally say anything to attract attention. This was a tweet in relation to the striking rail workers. Those striking receive an average salary of 45990 uh, four, uh, sorry, forty-five thousand nine hundred nineteen pounds per year, and have been offered a nine percent increase over two years, with a guarantee of no compulsory redundancies until April twenty twenty-four. A bloody good salary. Don't like swearing, but I'll let that one pass. And an increase above what most are getting. Hardly a bad deal, is it? So it seems to me that Mr. Benton's strategy to retain his seat at the next general election—he's not got a big majority, no surprise there—is to be seen as a crusader against all things woke, like his. Hero, Ron DeSantis. 
What do you think, Michael? And is Scott Benton on manoeuvres? Yeah, completely is. And Benton, like Jonathan Gullis, Lee Anderson and Andrea Jenkins, they seem to represent what I would call the thick right of the Tory party. And they're pushing the buttons of the outright racist and culture war anti-woke part of the population. At the same time, they're probably, I would guess, being tapped up by the Reform Party. That's a, a party that used to be called the Brexit Party that was led by and set up by Nigel Farage. It's currently run by Richard Tice and his partner, Isabel Oakeshott. Farage is probably operating somewhere in the shadows there as well, but they're keeping up a high profile in order to tempt some Tory MPs to jump ship and join them, to be a thorn in the side for the Tories, to campaign against things like just you know, immigration, nice people, things like that, and, and for a, a harder Brexit, God knows why. Uh, and that's why Rishi Sunak is trapped by them to an extent. So he keeps people like the awful Suella Braverman in as Home Secretary. And he's included stopping, putting in new laws to stop the small boat crossings as a key policy objective. This is about a battle for the long-term heart and soul of the Tory party. And that's why Scott Benton is on manoeuvres. And, 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 and as I say, if any of these people want to come on and defend themselves, you know, like Lee Anderson, feel free, you know, but expect us to ask the sort of questions that we don't think you're being asked at the moment because, you know, if you only if you only get attention by saying nasty things, then it's just a race to the bottom. So if Scott we- Benton came on, you could ask him a f- perfectly legitimate question such as... What, what formation should Tottenham play? No, know? no. What's, what formation should Blackpool play? Yeah. <laughs> right, I think it's time for a quick yeah, break. Or when the last time Blackpool won anything? Uh, 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 no, you can't say that because they beat Nottingham Forest at the weekend they 4-1 did. in the FA Cup. You yeah, know, which is so. better than my team did in a cup match against Nottingham Forest recently. Okay. Welcome back to the third and final part of Northern Spin. This is the bit where we look at the lighter side of the North, our ongoing attempts to make Chris a little bit more Northern, or maybe you'll accuse me of being a little bit chippy and mank. Or... My, my wife got me a cup um, and she wanted me to share it with you. Okay. Um, I mean, as a, Go on, uh, let's have a look. I'll read a, it out. Yeah, as a Blackburn fan, you're so not used to cups. Yeah. I'm not perfect, but I'm Northern, and that's pretty much the same thing. That's brilliant. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah, good. You have yeah. to have a cup of Lancashire tea in that. Actually, I'm going to put that on the. Uh, I'm going to put that over there so I can refer to it every week. Very good. Right. So um, anyway, talking I want about- to start talking about Andy Spinoza's book Manchester Unspun, which is coming out in February. I had the rare honour of running the rule over this fantastic book due out in February. He's crafted what I would describe as a memoir history of Manchester over the last four decades, obviously from his own perspective. And it just tells an absolutely terrific tale of a city undergoing incredible change. So when the the time's right, I will post a, a fuller review. Maybe interview Andy for this podcast. Yeah. Would that be legitimate? Yeah, I think yeah. so, yeah. Um, but as you can tell, I, I obviously enjoyed it immensely. I think every book's got a core audience, then a core audience, and then an inner, inner core audience. And I think I'm that because I'm think a proper anorak because it's got music, politics, all the stuff I wrote about. I'm in the index twice. Did I mention that? <laughs> um, and also, that Andy, Andy's a journalist, so he, he tells a great tale. Um, he talks us through his work with Mick Hucknell from Simply Red, who's yeah. a, a major property investor yeah. in Manchester, which not a lot of people know. He also worked for Gary Neville, and it didn't necessarily end that, end that well for, for Andy. But he just tells it in such an honest, authentic, and really, really compelling way. And it, you, know, you can understand why the... Um, the reviews that he's had so far from people who've had been lucky enough to have sight of it have been so fulsome. I went to uh, Lytham Festival last year and uh, Mick Hucknall performed. All right. We're Simply Red. I'm not a Simply Red fan, but he was brilliant, actually. Um, now, the book's not out why, until... Why, are you not a, why would you say, I'm not a Simply Red fan, but he was brilliant? Yeah, well, because I, I, I'm not. I mean, if you look at my, uh, you look at my history on Spotify, you won't find any Mick Hucknall on there, but he was just a real Jim charismatic... Jim Davison, Roy, Roy <laughs> Chubby Brown. Yeah, no, neither of those are on there either. The Lancashire um, Hot Pots. No, but I'll tell you what, actually, what's interesting is my daughter, uh, Imogen, uh, she was looking at my musical collection and she literally despaired. And yeah, she doesn't Celine hold back. Dion. She doesn't hold... She's on there. Celine Ed, Sheer, Dion. Ed Sheeran is yeah, as well. Yeah, he, he's on there as well. Adele. But what she said, yeah, she, yeah, she's on there. Look, you've obviously looked into my, my Spotify <laughs> I history. I genuinely haven't. But what she said was that if you listen it's to something, music for people who don't like music if you listen to something and then press spotify um radio radio 
then then what it does, the algorithms pick all the music that you like. It is amazing. It's changed it my life. Yeah, um, good. I like Andy. I like Andy Spinoza a lot. Um, now, I knew him best, of course, when he was the MD of SKV Communications. He had his finger in most pies in Manchester, much the same as you. Um, like me, he's an adopted Northern. He's been yeah. here a lot longer than me. I think he came up here at the age of 18 and he's never left. Um, what's What I think is quite appropriate because when we were talking about a name for this podcast the name that you like was north northern unspun wasn't it yeah uh, and in the end we settled on um you know, northern spin um i'm we, glad andy liked it for his book anyway absolutely you know it's very apt that we're talking about andy spinoza nickname spin <laughs> we're talking about spin on northern spin so after we recorded our last show of the year i literally stumbled across a fantastic bookshop at the top of king street just up the road from the studio it's called the house of books and friends and it's a community interest company started by daryl cook from the law firm Gunner Cook. And he's created this wonderful space in partnership with the landlord Bruntwood in order to promote great books. So you can have a coffee and a cake there as well. And it's also a place that, that, that he really wants to combat loneliness. So I've been back since. One was to have a meeting with Andy Spinoza about the about my comments on the, um, the printer's draft of his book before publication. But it was also to buy some books for Christmas presents. So I want to talk about this yeah. This this thought that I've had. So the staff were wonderful. And I said to them, I said to them a couple of authors that my wife liked, like Lucy Foley and Elizabeth Day. And they said, ah, here's something for you. How to Kill Your Family by Bella Mackey. Now, I then read it afterwards, uh, after Rachel read it and said, you will love this. And sure enough, I did. I really, really enjoyed it and liked it. But then I went and spoiled it all by doing something stupid like looking up the author. And t t tell me if this is really bad, because we've, yeah. we've talked about this throughout the podcast about people's backgrounds. Bella Mackey, the author, her husband, is the Radio 1 presenter and TV star, Greg James. Her dad is the former editor of The Guardian, Alan Rushbridger. And the thanks at the start of the book include people who she names as friends, like her former Guardian colleague, Janine Gibson. And then she thanks her agent, her editor, I'm thinking... You've had every start in life to be able to get a book deal. Loads of people write books all the time. People who live in Tameside, Stockport, Chorley yeah. will be writing books and they haven't got the network that will enable them to get even close to being able to get a book. Now, it's really, really well written. I'm not going to take a smidgen away from the obvious talent that she's got but the network that, that she's had to enable it. That, that, and but, I don't know. So all I'm, all I'm asking you, and not to, not to as a, an opportunity to have a go at me, yeah. I, d I just had a sinking feeling when I read that. Is that bad of me? Yeah, I think, I tell you what I think is interesting is that, look, if I didn't know her and I hadn't listened to some of her podcast, which she does with Greg James, I would form exactly the same opinion as you. She is every opportunity in life, every opportunity, but actually what she produces is really good and she comes across really, really well as well. You mentioned bookshops. My daughter, my eldest daughter, she works in a bookshop. She has for three years as well. Right, which and one? What's Waterstones. Give it a plug. Waterstones. I won't say where because it wouldn't be fair for millions of people to turn up and uh, <laughs> chastise her because of her dad. Um, but, but what's interesting is the number of people who come in for conversations. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm one of these people who I buy stuff on Amazon, you know, and I listen to everything on Audible, you know, but people come in and literally they haven't spoken to anybody um, for, 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 for days. And uh, my daughter's got a real reputation that if people ask her questions, she'll talk and they'll, they'll comment. It's really nice. Um, I think we, the phrase we've spoken about a lot is that, that, that talent is evenly spread, but opportunity isn't. Yeah. Um, and 65% of Risha Sunak's government went to private school. And I'm a massive, massive cricket fan. I'm one of the, and I'm a massive fan of Ben Stokes as well, but, but, but a lot of the uh, England test cricketers have gone to yeah. private school. Yeah. So there's an issue there. It's not their fault. It's not their fault. But um, we have to move away from the fact that talent is evenly spread, but opportunity isn't. It's for us and for people like us, Michael, and I'm being serious now, to keep banging the drum to make sure that, that there is opportunity for everyone. Yeah, there is. I mean, I was in, in, an, in the position to do so when I was a, an editor and I, used to, I hired loads of people, gave job opportunities to people. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I went out of my way. No, I did. I actually, I actively went out of my way to give opportunities to people who were from the sort of backgrounds where they wouldn't necessarily think that they could ever have a career in business journalism. And I spoke to students at universities like UCLan, for example, and said, you can do this, you can step up. And many of those young people did. And they thank me to this day.
Yeah, no, uh, no, and I've always, I've always given opportunities to people. I've taken people in on, and, and given them work experience opportunities, but I've always been hard. I've always been really hard on them because I've said life isn't easy, mm. you know, so I'm not going to give you a, a, a really easy experience. Yeah. You know, one of the people I've had on work experience, uh, Henry Hill, who's now at a conservative home. Um, right. but, um, yeah, a lot of people will be saying Henry who, but, uh, yeah, he's a nice guy and he, he peep it in the hard yards and did work experience for me yeah. and I didn't give him there, an easy there, ride. There was an article produced before Christmas in the New York times or the New Yorker about, uh, Nepo babies, which is, you know, the sons and daughters of Hollywood stars. Mm. And sure enough, I watched Glass Onion over Christmas on Netflix yeah. starring. Did you like it? Kate Hudson. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it, it was great. Great. Did you, so, did you pick, did you pick the end early? Uh, my brother picked it in 30 minutes no I didn't yeah no, I didn't don't ruin it for anyone yeah. okay no I won't good no. um, anyway let's talk about your ongoing attempts to become a little bit more northern with your cultural escapades What you watched Sherwood which I recommended with David Morrissey and Robert Glenister what did you think yeah, it can make a point actually that the sons and daughters of famous people I would actually argue almost have it harder so Romeo Beckham has been signed by Brentford B team and yes, he's going to get attention, but everyone knows he is um, David Beckham's son. Yeah. So, 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 so there is a counterbalance there. But in terms of, yeah, but is um, he any Sherwood, good at football? In terms of Sherwood, yeah. No, of, if we can talk about one person, it would yeah. be Frank Lampard. Now yeah. he got a lot of West Ham fans when he broke into the team said he was no good, and Harry Redknapp said, "You watch this. This this is one of the greats." Yeah. And sure enough, and he proved every anybody who doubted his talent yeah. wrong. I actually saw Frank Lampard playing for Swansea. Did you? In a in a get when he was on loan from West Ham when he was being blooded. But but when you talk about David Beckham, I've got a lot of Preston. I've got a lot of friends who are Preston fans, and they say yeah, that when he, he did when he that came, for North End, didn't he? When he came to Preston, his attitude was spot on. And another player whose attitude was spot on was Reese James, who went to Wigan. I've got a lot of friends who are Wigan um, fans as well. And but but, are they, but they're not sons and daughters of famous people. That's my point about no, Lampard. Is, point. Is, is you said you know he had to work really really hard. Now Romeo Beckham. Okay. Now he. he who was he playing for? Which which professional football club had he as of Brentford B team signed him from? Where well, they where he earned it, his big break? Was it oh, it's into Miami, which is owned by uh, David his dad and, and and managed by his uncle. Um, <laughs> but uh, you stop being cynical. Look, we're so early into the new year, Michael, and you're being cynical. But let's get back to the question you asked, which is yes, Sherwood. I did. Let's sort of repeat the question. Yeah, so, we'll, Chris, let's talk about your ongoing attempts to become more northern. You watched on my recommendation the BBC drama Sherwood with David Morrissey and Robert Glenister, set in the aftermath of the miners' strike of 1985 yeah. and the appalling effects that it had on a community in North Nottinghamshire. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Any thoughts? Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It was. The thing is, the murders were almost incidental. So the writer basically said that he grew up and there were a couple of a couple of murders. So the murders in this aren't those murders, but they were sort of inspired the writing so there were two murders in this uh, very closely knit nottinghamshire mining village and uh, even though it was years and years after the event um you know the market the the the, the town was still split by um by by the uh, issues over what went on in the minor strike just remember for the for the listeners who don't know that that during the minor strike in 1984-85 my dad was a miner he was in kent in nottinghamshire there was a different there was a there was a split union wasn't there there was a split yeah. union set up it was the union of democratic mining workers and they went back to work almost straight away they didn't take part in the strike and the Nottinghamshire coalfield had had their own ballot to say yeah. not to go on strike very very and moving. the communities were stric stricken to the to, to this day very very moving and, a, and, and a, but you and liked a, it uh, yeah and is a, the yeah, point and a yeah, mutual friend of ours Andrea Wolfendale cried at the end but she cries at anything so I'm not sure that's a yeah, ringing testimony Great. So Happy Valley's returned to our screens after a gap of seven years. Yeah. Now that's set in Calderdale, isn't it? Around sort of Halifax, yeah. Todmorden, Hebden yeah. Bridge, places like that, starring Sarah Lancashire. Yeah. Um, I've watched one episode. I didn't watch the one that was on Sunday night. We're yeah. going yeah, we, we we to go to bed early. Yeah. Um, so don't ruin it for me. I've not uh, seen it myself. Okay. But anyway, what's your verdict so far so good? Yeah, yeah, it's just, it is just brilliant. It, it is it's beyond brilliant. I mean, the one thing I would say about Happy Valley is don't expect it to be happy, but it is set in a valley. Sarah Lancashire is just an amazing actress. She doesn't do loads and loads of stuff, but, you know, if, I don't know if you're a fan of Coronation Street, it's easy to forget that she played Raquel, Curly Watts' girlfriend, back in the early 1990s. Um, Steve Oliver, Music Magpie, massive fan uh, of uh, Coronation Street. He'll know this. Um, she's uh, married to ex-BBC executive Peter Salmon, actually. It's just breathtaking writing. 
breathtaking actors. Uh, it's as good as it gets. If you've not watched it and you've not watched the first two series, I envy you. My only bugbear is this. I watched the first episode uh, and then I went to press, you know, the second episode and it wasn't on. Yeah. I had to wait. I mean, what's yeah. happening? I want view, it on our demand. viewing habits have changed, haven't they? Yeah. We, we were going to wait for the whole thing, but we ended up watching it. Um, you, know, you went to watch uh, the mighty Stockport yesterday? I did. I went to watch Stockport County against Walsall with my mate Joshy Herman, editor of the Manchester Mill, who wants to come on this podcast, by the way. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, um, we'll go on his as well. Yeah. You know, then yeah. everyone will, one day everyone will have a podcast <laughs> and be guests on each other's. Yeah. Um, yeah, we went to that, um, bumped into a few Labour people in and around Stockport. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Not surprised you're bumping into Labour people. And loads of media people. Saw Richard Stead from the BBC. He was there. Yeah. Uh, saw a bit of aggro after the match as well. It was yeah. a bit of a throwback to the 1980s. Between who? Stockport and Walsall fans having oh. a having a bit of a tear up in the street with lots of police running around and innocent members of the public being caught up in the aggro. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want to overplay that because Stockport have done an amazing role. But yeah, you don't tend to see those headlines, which is the reason why when you see it, no. it's a surprise. But but they got beat, didn't they? Stockport got beat 2-1 with a penalty in the 94th minute, which... Um... I would have left by then, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You'd have missed that, wouldn't you? But I yeah. love the FA Cup. Yeah. I really love the FA Cup. The idea that someone like a non-league team like Wrexham can beat Coventry, that Blackpool can beat Nottingham Forest from the Premier League, that League One Sheffield Wednesday will beat Premiership, big spending Newcastle United. And um, there was another game as well where a, a lower league team won, not Bournemouth. Up. I can't remember who I that don't was. Want to sound, I don't want to sound instantly. I don't want to sound like you, cynical Michael uh, from Marple. But, but it's drama. But you talk That's about not Rexham. cynical. You talk That's about romance. Rexham. Talk about Wrexham. Oh, little old non-league Wrexham who've got two Hollywood actors as their owners. They are as close to being non-league. I know they are technically. Yeah, and they are. They're still second in the no, league. Chris, they are. It was a great game though because they were 4-1 up and Coventry had a player sent off and they got back to 4-3 Coventry. You know, that was a great game. Coventry play three divisions above them. I thought... Stevenage beat Aston Villa. Yeah. That was amazing. That was amazing. Even though I thought Olsen was at fault for the winning goal. Uh, the goalkeeper for Aston Villa. Never Don't get beaten on your near post. But Don't matter. Yeah, yeah. I thought there was a bit of a throwback this weekend, actually, because teams putting good... Putting, you know, Premier League teams... In the, in the main, pitting actually decent teams. They put decent teams out. Um, you know, and I thought that was good. I thought Newcastle getting beat by Sheffield Wednesday. You know, Dean Windass's son, you know, scored two goals, even though the first one was clearly offside. No, it was just great. And it was good fun. And actually, it just made for a great weekend of football. It certainly did. Right, that's all we've got time for, for the sixth episode of season two of Northern Spin. We're now on Apple Podcasts. We've been on for a while. We're on all sorts of platforms, actually. Seek us out wherever you may find us. And don't forget to press the subscribe button. You can follow us on Twitter at, at Northern underscore Spin One. You can watch us on YouTube. Thank you, thank you, thank you to What Media for recording this podcast, to Oscar Technology for sponsoring us, and to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name is Michael Taylor. The chap from Stockport. And my name is Chris Maguire, the, poorly, uh, the, poor, the poor chap from Chorley. Thank you very much.